The title of our sermon today is the Imago Dei, or Imago Dei, how some people pronounce it, um, which is the Latin term which means the image of God. So we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. I'm going to do my best to get us through it as quickly as possible, but I won't we're going to talk about the Imago Dei and what does it mean and why is it important? What does this phrase mean and why is it important to each one of us? Um, our key words this morning for our worshipers and training are image, God, and likeness. Image, God, and likeness. So everyone in here this morning is a human being, right? We're all human beings. But what does this mean that we're a human being? Who, who are we? You know, what are we? Are we gods or are we nothing more than an animal who wears shoes and has a job and drives a car? This question and these questions set the tone of really how you think about everything in life. This affects how we think about philosophy, history, theology, and even on a more personal level, things like your view of yourself and of others, such as your family, your friends, your co-workers, and everyone around you, this question affects that. So what does it mean to be a human being? I want to start by kind of setting the stage, give us a little historical background. So we're going to briefly look at how we got to where we are as a Western culture as it concerns the questions of our humanity, of who we are as humans. And I'm just going to obviously hit on a few views of this, but some that I think are, are some of the big views throughout history. So inside and outside the church. So generally, before Augustine, the great theologian of the 4th and 5th centuries, when people thought about who they were, they thought about who they were in connection to other people. So in other words, what group they belonged to. A group could be your family line, your, your lineage, your ethnicity. It could be the place where you were born or the place where you live. It could be a certain tribe or people group or even a religion or some other you know, group like that. And this still holds some sway in our culture, but it's not always the dominant view of who we are as a human being. So Augustine, in his book, Confessions, identifies himself not only with a group, but he identifies himself as an individual. And this eventually led to a more individual, individualistic outlook by many, especially in the Western world. So a few, many years later, another man, another philosopher by the name of Rene Descartes, came up with an idea. And you've probably heard of this. His idea was, I think, therefore I am. So this was his answer to the question, what does it mean to be a human being? To Descartes, it wasn't what group you belong to or just that we were individuals, but the fact that human had minds that thought is what made us who we are. It's what makes us different and unique from the rest of the world, from the rest of creation. And to him, this is what makes us human. So I can't go down this road really too far, but on the downside, though, what Descartes is fundamentally doing is replacing God, I am, with his own finite mind. I think, therefore, I am. So next, we, want to, we look at Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan thinker. And Edwards kind of built on what Descartes said, and he agrees that we're individuals with rational minds, and we can be saved or transformed or improved by God's grace. So with our minds and God's grace, through salvation, we can become better people. Now next is uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Now Rousseau said people do not need God's grace because we're basically good 
And we only need to look inwards into ourselves, inward into ourselves, right? Not outward to God or anyone else to change ourselves for the better. So this is in essence a belief not that we need to seek God's love, but we need to love ourselves. We don't need God's acceptance through Jesus, but we need to accept ourselves. So basically we need to give ourselves a big hug. And that's, that's how we become a better human or become human. And from here we can see this idea develop that we don't need God, but just a highly trained therapist to solve all our problems. Now the assumption here is that we are highly developed machines. And any problem can be repaired just by psychologically reordering or reprogramming our minds or our understandings through therapy. And this is therapy that's without God, without Christ, and without an understanding of sin. So lastly, another, the last name is Abraham Maslow. You may have heard of him. He came up with the idea of man's hierarchy of needs. In his thought, your greatest need is, obviously not to glorify God, but to basically glorify yourself through what he called self-actualization. And this takes the form of, in order for us to be happy, which is being fully human, us being happy is what it means to be fully human, you need to achieve your full potential, right, by making all the money you can make, by being as healthy as you can be, by being as successful and powerful and as influential as you can be. You want to be all you can be and have your best life here and now. And this becomes the essence of what it means to be human. Now, these aren't necessarily bad things to have money or to be healthy or to be successful and influential. These are not bad things, but they do not define who we are, right? So this leads us where where I'm going to say we seem to be today in America and the West in what a lot of people have called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic meaning everyone thinks we just need to be a good person, right? Right? We just, we just all need to be good people. Remember, for those of you that were here for the way of the master, and that's how Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort would go out sharing the gospel with people. That's what they usually started to ask them. Are you a good person? You know, and I think if we remember, most people believe they were good people, right? They believe, yeah, I'm, I'm basically a good person. And, you know, we know this is diametrically opposed to what the Bible says. Romans 3.10 says, no one is good, no, not one. So moralistic, are you a good person? Therapeutic. So this is a belief that God is just a big therapist in the sky, right? He just wants us to feel good about ourselves. He is here basically just to meet our needs. So God is our therapist in the sky. And then deism. Deism basically says that God is far away and not really here to help help us at all. He may occasionally swoop down to help us, only if things get really bad and only on pretty rare occasions. He is not a personal God who's always near, but a God we will shout out a prayer to when we really need him, and he may or may not show up, depending on how busy he is that particular day. Now, I believe this is the way we see God portrayed most of the time today. So I want to go through this all because this is the belief system most of us encounter every day and that a lot of us have grown up in. This is at least for the near future, I think, the understanding of mankind that you will encounter with other people in movies, television, music, education, and all parts of our Western society. This is the world we live in, a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic world. 
So because of that, we find that our view of man really shapes our view of God instead of the other way around as it should be. Our view of God should shape our view of man. And this view of man leads us to a place today where we, as a society, experience pride and despair at the very same time. We're prideful because we all think we're great and we have all the answers. You know, we're, all we need is ourselves. We've got all the answers for life. But at the same time, we despair because at some point we realize that there is something wrong and we don't know what to do about it. So we have seen how some men approach and answer the question of what it means to be human, but let's look at the Bible and see what God says about who we were as a human race, who we are as a human race, and where we're going as a human race. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 28 and then 31, and we're going to go to chapter 2 and look at some verses. We're going to skip around a little bit, and we're going to hit various verses throughout the Bible, but we're going to start and spend the beginning of our time in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 and 31. So in Genesis 1-1, we see God creating everything. And through the rest of the chapter, God is creating day by day, right? God's laying that out. What is he creating? Now, the Bible asserts and assumes that God pre-exists. God has always existed, and he makes everything and everyone. So let's look at Genesis 1 Verses 26 through 28 and 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So so here we have in the first chapter of Genesis, God is showing us the uniqueness of, of the creation of mankind. We see here that only man is created in God's image and after his likeness. One of the first things we see is that God counsels with or deliberates about man's creation. He says, let us. And we see that with no other creation does God do this but man. So he says in verse 26, let us make man in our image. And there have been a couple of different interpretations of this, but to me... And I think to most Christians throughout the history, the understanding is that this is showing us that God is speaking of the fact that he does not exist as a solitary person does, but as a being in fellowship with others within himself. So though the word Trinity is not used here or explicitly taught, I think it is expressed here. And obviously it's more clearly expounded in the New Testament. So moving on, the word man in the Hebrew is the word Adam, or where we get Adam. This is referring to mankind in general as opposed to the animals. And verse 27 is pretty much the meat of our discussion this morning. Here God says that mankind is made in our image after our likeness. So even though these are two different phrases, they're basically two ways of saying 
are expressing a similar thought. The Hebrew word for image has the root meaning of to carve out or to cut out of something, telling us that man images God or man represents God to the world. And the Hebrew word for likeness means to be like. These two words combined are saying that man is a representation of God who is also like God in certain ways. Man is carved out, cut out of God to represent God to the world. Now we're given some specific ways in these verses that we resemble God. One in verse 26, God has given man dominion over the earth. So in exercising dominion, man is like God because God has supreme and ultimate dominion over all the earth. In verse 27, God has created us male and female. Now this is uh, showing us there is a complementarian relationship of the man and woman. In other words, they complement each other. And we see that God exists as a social being in close fellowship within the Trinity. And so likewise, he has created man as a social being who needs the companionship of community and fellowship that comes with marriage and family, friendships, and their church, where Christians are encouraged to live out their callings in God's representatives, as God's representatives. So he creates male and female. So God has created male and female. So that may bring the question to your mind, well, what gender is God? You know, what is God? Well, the Bible tells us that God is spirit, so he does not have a gender. He is neither male nor female. But God does reveal himself in a masculine form as father, and Jesus was a man. But God is not a gendered being. But as the Apostle John tells us, God is a spirit. But a thing that's important and I think that's very cool to remember is that because but male and female do both proceed from God and are made equal to each other in the image and likeness of God. So neither are more like God than the other. They both represent God and they are both represent the image and likeness of God. So in verse 28, we see that men and women are responsible beings who can be addressed by God and are ultimately responsible to him. So God blesses Adam and Eve, and by doing this, he is showing a communication and relationship with them. Kindness and affection and a personal relationship. In verse 31, we see that because man came directly from God, he was not corrupt, depraved, or sinful. Whatever state we find ourselves in today, man as originally created was in God's own words, very good. So those are kind of four ways we see uh, that we are, are represent God or possess qualities like God. And we'll talk about more in a minute. But let's look briefly now over at Genesis chapter 2. And I want to look at verses 7 and 8, verses 15 and 16, verses 18, and verses 21 through 23. So just briefly touch on a few of these. So in Genesis 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Skip verse 17 and verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So in Genesis chapter 2, we have kind of a retelling of Genesis chapter 1 and of the creation story. This is kind of an Eastern Hebrew way of doing things. They'll start a story at the beginning, go to the middle, start back at the beginning, kind of jump around a little bit. So that would not be uncommon to an Eastern mindset reading this story. So you see in verse 7, God spoke... All of creation except for man, who he formed and breathed into life. And most people believe this breathing into life is when he gave man a soul and a spirit. In verse 15 through 16, God commanded. So God is a moral being. So so are we. Unlike the animals, man has a moral duty to obedience. And then in verse 18 and following, God makes Adam the first man and the first woman who is a helper fit for him. So the implication here is that men need help, at least most men. So that's probably not a stretch for most of us that are married to realize that. So a helper is a good thing, right? The Holy Spirit is said to be the Christian's helper here on earth. So this is not a negative description at all, but a declaration of worth and of value and of purpose. So like we have said, the woman is an equal image bearer of God along with the man. So let's jump over to Genesis chapter 5. That's the next passage that deals with man as being the image of God. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. So a few chapters later, we see, verse 1 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, there's that Hebrew, Adam. When God created man, Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So this section of Scripture starts out with a reminder that God created man in his likeness using the same Hebrew word that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 26. Now, I haven't really discussed the fall of man that happened in chapter 3. We just skipped over that. But we do learn there that Adam and Eve sinned against God. And that had the effect of plunging mankind into slavery to sin and disobedience. From then on, this sin nature is passed on to every person who is ever born. And because of this catastrophic event, there are some who would say that man completely lost his likeness of God. But as we see here and in the rest of the Bible, there's no mention of that. On the contrary, this post-fall reference to creation reminds us of our image-bearing role in creation. So now, don't get me wrong, there's no doubt that God's image has been tarnished and disfigured and warped by the fall. But as bad as the fall was, it was not even enough to completely erase our foundational nature as image bearers of God. Now, to add strength to this argument, verse 3 here tells us that Adam fathered a son 
after the fall, and this son, Seth, was born in the image and likeness of his father, Adam. Now, since Adam bore God's image and Seth was made in Adam's likeness, we can infer that Seth and everyone else is still an image bearer of God. So let's, let's, let's find out if that's true. Let's keep looking. Um, turn over to chapter 9, verse 6. This is our final Old Testament passage dealing with the image of God. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now the context here is God is giving instructions to mankind via Noah to preserve the earth and its inhabitants. The basic message here is that, at least at this time and place, whoever murders another person is deserving of the same fate, which is obviously death. And the reason for this is grounded in the fact that mankind is made in God's image. Anthony Hokema, in his book, Created in God's Image, has this to say about this passage. A quote, The reason that murder is here said to be such a heinous crime that it must be punished by death is that the man who has been murdered is someone who imaged God, reflected God, was like God, and represented God. Therefore, when one when one kills a human being, not only does he take that person's life, but he hurts God himself, the God who was reflected in that individual. To touch the image of God is to touch God himself. To kill the image of God is to do violence to God himself. So let's, let's look at the New Testament and see what the New Testament has to say about the image of God. If you would, turn over to, or you don't have to, James chapter 9, verse 3. And this is one passage that pretty clearly tells us that fallen man still retains the image of God. So speaking on the power and evil capacity of the tongue, James tells us in chapter 3, verse 9, With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James chapter 3, verse 9. So James is here pointing out the evil inconsistency when we both praise God and then curse others with the very same tongue. But what is inconsistent about it? Well, because the other people that we curse are people made in the likeness of God. Again, on this, on this verse, Hokema has this to say, human beings, are here des- human beings as here described have at some point in the past been made according to the likeness of God and are still bearers of that likeness. For this reason, it is inconsistent to praise God and curse men with the same tongue, since the human creatures whom we curse still bear the likeness of God. For this reason, God is offended when we curse men. So it's important to remind ourselves that James is talking about all people everywhere, not just Christians or those who look and, like, look and act like ourselves, but all people everywhere are made in the likeness of God. Now, some other human attributes that show how people are like God are made in His image. And these are common ones that you'll usually hear when people are talking about this. We're social beings. We like to write, communicate, speak. We have emotions. We feel things deeply, and we understand normally what we're feeling and why we're feeling them. We can think, learn. We have an intellect, and we can reason. So all these attributes of man flow from the imago dei, 
being made in the image of God. So before, i got a few more New Testament verses I want to look at, but before we get there, I want to transition our thinking a little bit. So up until now, we have been thinking about the image of God as a noun. You know, it's, it's something, it's what we are. But I want you to begin to think about it as a verb, as in how can I image, how can I, as an image bearer, image God as I should be? So I think that's the way the New Testament refocuses our attention and shows us the importance of the image of God, that not only are we made in the image of God, but that we must live and act as an image of God. And there's a reason in the New Testament we can do that. His name's Jesus, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. So let me talk about for a minute ways we are like God, communicable or shared attributes with God. So this is what they usually call communicable attributes, which means attributes that God has communicated to us that we share with him, um, that we can see every day. So we see God as a spirit. Well, we have a spirit that lives forever, right? That's one of the children's catechism answers. I have a spirit that can never die. God is holy, and by God's grace, we can live holy lives, right? We can make moral decisions in our dominion over the earth. We can have positive and unfortunately negative effects on the earth. So God is spirit. God is holy. God loves and is good to people. We can love others and be good and fair and just to others. God is truth. We don't have to live with lies. We can tell the truth and receive the truth with gladness because we're image bearers of the one who gives us the truth. God is just. We too can seek after justice and righteousness for all people. God is merciful and compassionate. We too should be merciful and compassionate to others. God is beauty, and God defines beauty. And we too can create beauty and appreciate beautiful things. We can appreciate music and art, aesthetically pleasing things, architecture, food, um, technological advances. And I like what J.R.R. Tolkien the writer of The Lord of the Rings has a lot to say about this. And he says that authors who write stories do it because they're created in the image of God. He says that in authors who want to most fully express this act of sub-creating write fantasy. They write fantasy stories. As, J, as Tolkien calls it, fairy stories. F-A-E-R-I-E stories, which have nothing to do with fairies, but... He's got this long, complicated definition of fairy, but it's really rich, deep, detailed stories. And he says, you know, when we're doing that, we're sub-creating. We're creating brand new worlds, brand new languages, brand new stories. And that's us reflecting God's image when we're doing that. If you ever wonder why people are so attracted to stories like that, he says that's because we're creating the image of God and we are imaging him as sub-creating. And lastly, God is a God of order. Through the gospel, God brings order to chaos, and we can, too, bring order to the world around us. So these are things we share with God. It's a tremendous blessing that God gives to all humanity to share in his very own attributes. None of these things were created by man, but were given to us by God as blessings to enjoy and to share with each other and with him. We know we have fallen into sin and can't do these things like we should, but we can still pursue them to a degree as image bearers, but only with God's help and with God's grace. If there was no sin, we would perfectly reflect God's image. But this brings us 
a lot closer to where I want to finish this morning. So we were created to image God perfectly, but we failed. We sinned and tarnished the image. So now we're like broken, warped mirrors, the kind that you see at you know, fairs, or at least you used to. You, know, you can still see your image. You can still kind of tell that you're there, but it's really broken and misshaped and stretched you know, one way or the other. and looks really crazy. So our job, what we are created to do, is to image God perfectly, but we can't do that anymore. So what did God do? Well, because he loved us, he sent us someone who can image God perfectly, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the unsurpassable, perfect example of what God wants each of us to be like. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The Apostle Paul, writing to Corinthians, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, the Greek word here for image is icon, E-I-K-O-N, which is where we get our English word icon, and is the equivalent of the Hebrew word used for image in Genesis. And one definition of this Greek word is the perfect reflection of a prototype. And this has the idea that an icon is something or someone that participates in the reality that it represents. So not completely separate from the prototype. So you think of an icon on your computer that you click, but you know this is a little more than that. It's, this is icon is a perfect reflection of the prototype and it's not completely separate it is part of what it represents so when we see jesus we are seeing the glory and image of god colossians 1:15 says he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation so even though god is invisible and we can't see him with our eyes in jesus the invisible god becomes visible the person who looks at Christ is actually looking at God. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son, Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So here in Hebrews, you see a fascinating relationship between the image of God and the incarnation. Jesus coming as flesh in a man, as a man, coming in flesh as a man. So while the incarnation is, is a great mystery to us that God came to earth as a, in flesh as a man, we might presume that the very reason that Jesus could come to earth as a man is because man was made in God's image in the first place. So what other being could he come as, as no other being has a resemblance to God? And this is all a part of God's redemptive plan. We could sit here and probably think, of it, think about this all day, but this is all a part of God's redemptive plan. In John 14, 8-9, Jesus tells Philip, If you see me, you have seen the Father. In other words, I am the Father's perfect image. So now we have a benchmark, right? We have a measuring rod. We have a standard for what it means to be a normal human. So we've got to remember this. We have to renew our mind with this. Jesus is what normal should be like. He is normative. We are abnormal. 
This means that in this life, we are not to compare ourselves to others, right? But to Jesus, who perfectly images or reflects God. So the question before us is, well, can we even do this? Can we image God? And if so, how do we image God? Romans 8.29 says that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that's pretty clear. Um, There's our answer to the can we part. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have the ability to image God. God is conforming you to the image of his Son. But how do we do that? Colossians 3, 5 through 10 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practice. Verse 10, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, after the image of its creator. So John Calvin said that we image God by by reflecting God's image like a mirror, that we are to radiate God to the earth and to others. And what this looks like is mirroring God's patience, mirroring His love, Mirroring his truthfulness, his compassion, his mercy, his justness, not being prejudiced or prideful, that we pursue holiness and righteousness to be more and more like Jesus. So there's no better way to see the image of God than to look at Jesus, right? Unfortunately, through sin, our mirror is broken. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians can reflect God more and more and bring glory to Jesus. This is our key. We're coming full circle now. This is our key to a joyous life, right? What a great, joyful experience it is to mirror Jesus and focus on Him instead of focusing on ourselves. We exist to mirror Jesus and glorify God, the imitatio Christi, imitating Christ. We exist to mirror Jesus. This is our root source of joy. This is our source of meaning and significance, even in times of trouble. Not stuff or people or anything else, just Jesus. Living in a way that doesn't seek to mirror God, in other words, living for sinful, selfish desires apart from your Creator, is wasting your life in a giant, wild goose chase of eternal consequences. So in closing, I want to give you three specific implications of the implications of the imago dei one this is the root of why we show justice compassion and equality this is why we have mercy ministries as a church one of the primary reasons this is why we share the gospel this is why we seek justice and goodness for all people two this is the reason we love all people of all ethnic backgrounds because all people equally bear the image of god everywhere No matter what color you are, no matter where you were born, everyone on the face of the planet equally bears the image of God. And number three, this is the reason we are to respect all human life, no matter the age or the condition, right? This has implications for our view of things like abortion, 
and euthanasia. This is why we believe that all human life has value, regardless of the condition, because it was created in the image of God. No matter how small it is, there's still an image. So the only way you can do what you were created to do, that is, image God, is to be in a relationship with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you just a couple of questions. Are you in a relationship with Jesus? Do you mourn and grieve over your sin? Have you felt your guilt over your sin and asked God to forgive you? Have you claimed by faith the work of Christ on the cross? If you haven't, now is the time. God has made a way, and His name is Jesus. So I want to encourage, in closing, encourage my church family to be connected to God and His people and let the church come alongside you and connect you to others that will help you to image God. It's not good to be alone. God is not alone, and you shouldn't be either. And the only way we can continue to mirror God is by daily progressive renewal of our hearts and minds through the gospel and through the word, right? Philippians 4, 8 through 10. We think about things that are true, that are noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. These are the things we think about on a daily basis. These are the things we do to image God. So our ultimate goal and our promised end is that one day, as John wrote in 1 John 3, 2, we will see Jesus as He really is, as God's perfect image. And when that happens, we will be like Him, the perfect image bearers we were created to be. Isn't that a wonderful thing to look forward to? I can't wait. Let's pray. Father, we are so very thankful again for this time that you've given us. Lord, we are thankful for your word, that it is so very living and active and powerful and strong. We're thankful that your word tells us and teaches us and reminds us that we were created in your image, in the Imago Dei. That even though sin has come into this world, Lord, you have provided a rescue a way out, a deliverance. You have redeemed us from the marred image and you have given us the true image of God. He came in the flesh to take on our sins and to give us His righteousness, His goodness. And we are so very thankful for that. Father, I pray this morning that as we leave here today that we would think about these things, that we would think about what it means to be created in the image of God, that we would think about what it means that we are called to image you, Lord. And we just pray that the Holy Spirit would be actively involved in conforming us to the image of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. It's in Jesus' very powerful name that we pray. Amen.